You are now listening to the January 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and Divine Intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we'll continue on with the story of Jehu, the 10th king of Israel, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. Jehu was chosen by God to become the 10th king of Israel after delivering God's judgment against Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah. After he was enthroned, Jehu came down to Jezreel and carried out God's judgment against Jezebel, the mother of the king. It was in fulfillment of God's word that had been prophesied by Elijah. Jehu's work to clean out the house of Ahab continued after killing Jezebel. He had to contend with 70 descendants of Ahab, his sons and grandsons, any of whom would be eligible to be enthroned. Obviously, they posed a threat to Jehu's reign. Here is how he proceeded to eliminate them. Jehu sent letters to the leaders of Jezreel, the rulers, the elders, and the guardians of the children of Ahab. Jehu demanded their total and complete subjugation. To demonstrate they were on his side, they were ordered to bring the heads of Ahab's descendants by the next day. What do you think happened? Well, they were scared and they carried out his orders. They took Ahab's 70 descendants and slaughtered them. As demanded, they put their heads in a basket and sent them to Jehu. They did not go to Jehu themselves because they were terrified for their lives, lest they might become just like Ahab's sons. Jehu had the heads dumped in two piles at the entrance of the gate until the next morning. This was the tradition in the ancient time in the Near East region that signified the conquering of the enemy. It warned all others to not dare challenge him. After that, Jehu continued to eliminate anyone in Jezreel that was associated with the house of Ahab. He killed all the nobles, trusted ones, and even priests who served under Ahab. After purging everyone affiliated with Ahab's house, Jehu headed to Samaria, the capital of Israel. And something happened on the way. On his way to Samaria, Jehu accidentally met brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, at the house of shepherds where they sheared sheep. As a side note, brothers of Ahaziah does not necessarily mean Ahaziah's immediate brothers. Some of the listeners may recall all of Ahaziah's immediate brothers died in the hands of the Philistines when God judged against Ahaziah's father, Jehoram, and Ahaziah was the sole survivor. So the brothers who Jehu met were likely Ahaziah's nephews and cousins 
and were called brothers in a broader sense. Jehu immediately surmised that these people related to Ahaziah were a threat to him because they were still allied with the house of Ahab. So he ordered his soldiers to kill them off, forty-two in all. After the killing of Ahaziah's brothers, Jehu continued his way to Samaria. As he approached Samaria, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, came out to greet Jehu. Jehonadab trusted God with all his heart and lived his life by the strict following of Moses' laws. He was someone with deep faith. It was a momentous occasion for such a person to come to greet Jehu. When they met up, Jehu posed to Jehonadab whether Jehonadab's heart was right with Jehu's as his heart was right with Jehonadab's. Jehu was aware that Jehonadab had a spiritual influence on people, and when he came to meet him, Jehu wanted to find out Jehonadab's sincerity. He wanted to know whether Jehonadab came to greet him to acknowledge him as the king or because he had other reasons. To test Jehonadab's intentions, Jehu extended his hand to Jehonadab. Jehonadab then accepted Jehu's hand and got on his chariot. Jehonadab's action confirmed he was on Jehu's side. His gestures signified that Jehu was chosen by God and was the one to fulfill God's word. They arrived in Samaria together, and Jehu went to work. He killed off all remaining people who were affiliated with the house of Ahab. Through all that, God's word that had come through Elijah's prophecy was fulfilled that any men belonging to the house of Ahab in Israel, whether they were free or slaved, would be put to death. After cleaning out everyone that had belonged to the house of Ahab, Jehu then proceeded to eradicate the Baal worshipping from Israel. 2 Kings chapter 10 verses 18 to 27 record how Jehu destroyed Baal and Baal worshippers in detail. Jehu first gathered all the people and declared to them that he would serve Baal much more than Ahab ever did. And he told him that he was planning a great sacrifice for Baal and summoned all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers, and all his priests without anyone missing. This was not because Jehu was actually going to worship Baal, but wanted to make sure they bring out all Baal worshippers in one time and eradicate them all at once. Since the king himself declared that he was going to worship Baal greatly, all those who worshipped Baal complied. They came and gathered because they wanted to be on the king's good side. An extravagant worship for Baal was staged to entice the Baal worshippers, and every Baal worshipper gathered in the house of Baal. Jehu brought out the special garments for all the worshippers of Baal. This was done likely to distinguish them from the others. Jehu went into the house of Baal, 
with Jehonadab and ordered those who were not worshippers of Baal to leave. When the worshippers went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu stationed eighty men outside of the house of Baal and ordered them not to let any of the Baal worshippers to leave the premise. Then as soon as the ceremony of burnt offering was finished, Jehu ordered his guard and royal officers to go into the house of Baal and kill everyone in it, sparing no one. So the guard and the royal officers killed them with their swords and threw them outside the house of Baal. The Bible records that they brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them and turned the house of Baal into an outhouse. By using the place as an outhouse, Jehu intended to defile it, lest there would be any effort to rebuild the house of Baal. In 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, God said to Jehu that he had done well in executing what was right in God's eyes and promised Jehu that his descendants would sit on the throne to the fourth generation. Unfortunately for Jehu and his descendants, God's commendation about Jehu stopped there. That was because, though Jehu demolished the house of Baal and cleaned out all the worshippers of Baal, it became evident he really did not dedicate his heart to God. 2 King chapter 10, verse 29 tells us that Jehu did not depart from the sin of worshipping the golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Some of the listeners may recall these worshipping places in Bethel and Dan were set up by King Jeroboam of northern Israel to prevent his people from going down to worship in Jerusalem in southern Judah. According to verse 31, Jehu embraced the sins of Jeroboam, which caused not only him to sin, but also made his people in Israel to sin. Therefore, God cut off the portions of Israel east of the Jordan River and delivered them to Hazael, the king of Aram. Looking back, Jehu was chosen by God to judge the house of Ahab and was enthroned as the king of Israel. Yes, he successfully carried out the sacred work of cleaning up Baal worshipping, but he failed where it mattered the most. He failed to worship God in God alone. He did not walk in the ways of God and worshipped idols, and in the end became known as a king who did evil in the sight of God. This concludes today's episode. We'll continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, I love to tell the story. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. But seriously, Jesus spoke some last words. And you generally think that the last thing somebody says is the most important thing that they would say in their lives. And so the last words that Jesus said are, some people think they're one thing, another. Uh, in the, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, if you want to look at the Matthew 28, and we'll do verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now this is called the great, how many know what this is called? The great commission, not suggestion, the great commission. And so Jesus says, go, go and evangelize, go witness. So I thought those are the last words of Jesus, amen. Actually, no. The very last words of Jesus we find in Acts chapter one. How many times have I read this verse and not really thought of it this way? The very last thing Jesus says to his followers, to the disciples is verse eight. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is amazing, the last words of Jesus because then it said, and then he ascended, maybe he was ascending as he said it up into a glory cloud and went to heaven. The very last words was, you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna share the gospel He said, go, therefore, and point people to Jesus. That's what it's all about, pointing people to Jesus. It's a command, not a suggestion. As I said, go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. You make disciples by introducing people to Jesus. He says, you're going to be my witnesses throughout the world. What's a witness? Anybody ever been a witness in a court case? Anybody here? I've given a deposition or two in my life, you know, that related to a case in court, but I've never had to be in the witness and, you know, and being questioned and all that really would intimidate me. But a witness in a legal proceeding is a person who's going to testify about things that they have seen, heard, and experienced. So you're going to be asked, what have you seen? Well, What have you heard? What have you uh, experienced? And it's all things having relevance to the current proceeding. The disciples were witnesses. They testified about what they had seen and heard and experienced while they were with Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we see that. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus showed himself alive to his disciples by a a series of very convincing, unquestionable evidences and proofs. And when Peter and John 
had been arrested, <laughs> Acts chapter 4 talks about this, for preaching the gospel. And they were told, don't you ever preach in this name again? Don't you ever share this anymore? Their response in Acts chapter 4 verse 20 was, listen, we cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. And what do they end up doing? Sharing what they've seen and heard and what they've experienced with Jesus. As Jesus' followers, we're expected by Jesus to share what we have seen and heard and experienced with him. We're to point people to Jesus. Basically, that's what, it, boil it all down, is pointing people to Jesus. Pointing them to Jesus. Now, this is the plan. Here at the beginning of the year, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at Acts 1 through 5. And we're going to see how people pointed people to Jesus. So that's, that's the plan. This is the foundation right now that we're talking about right now. The foundation. How important and what it means to point people to Jesus. I want you to hear this. Jesus believes that you have a story worth telling. Or he wouldn't say go and share it, right? He believes you, this is you singular, you have a story worth telling. Your story is important. You say, oh, my story isn't like the person who was this horrible person and then uh, the Lord saved them and now they're like this unbelievable testimony of going from, you know, darkness to light, you know, that kind of thing. My testimony is I always loved God. I mean, I've always loved God. I never knew what it wasn't to know God. I grew up knowing the Lord. How many of you was that your experience? You just kind of always knew about God. Let me see. Okay, not everybody, but a lot of us. Okay, you always knew about God. Maybe you had a grace awakening. You always knew about God, but you didn't know his grace. Sometimes your testimony, you know, say, oh, I don't, my testimony would never fill a stadium. You know, <laughs> nobody would want to listen to that. I prayed and when my grandma, you know, shared Jesus, and you know, you know, I became a Christian at three. <laughs> Let me tell you, you got a story to tell. You got a story to tell. Your story is you didn't have to waste thirty years of your life. My. Um, wife's grandpa got saved when he was 93 and everybody applauded yeah but it's 93 years of wasted life that's another way to look at his testimony yes the lord saved no i'm not saying that's something to applaud and really we're all excited about but what about the person that god preserves and doesn't go through that that's a huge testimony too that's a person that all the junk in your past generations got stopped when maybe your parents got saved your grandparents got saved and now you're living in a community of faith in your household that has always known and loved Jesus what a tremendous testimony that is too and your testimony is going to relate to somebody else like you say my testimony isn't important it's not all that great wait somebody may have a testimony that reaches thousands of people everybody's listening to it maybe others have a testimony and you think nobody listened to mine look 
I believe there is at least one person that you're going to come in contact with in your life that your story, what you have seen and heard and experienced with Jesus is going to change their life. You are going to be matched with that person. And if you weren't telling your story, they're never going to hear it. Okay, there's at least one person that God from all eternity, before they were born, said, I'm going to bring them in contact with Mark, who thinks his testimony, his story isn't anything. I'm going to bring this person, and they're going to have a match, and that person's going to get saved. And Mark, you fulfilled the purpose of your life right there. I'm not shocked, but I'm always excited when I hear uh, people get saved. They go to the prayer room, the prayer counselors will pray with them, and a lot of times the prayer counselors come out and they say, I can't believe the person I prayed with, they went through da-da-da-da-da, and it's exactly the prayer counselor's story before they got saved. See, this matching, God is into that. Your story is important. Jesus believes that. You hear me? Somebody say amen. Amen. He believes your story. It's a story that nobody else can tell. Nobody else can tell your story. Nobody else. There's a hymn that has been, it's an old hymn, but it's been refreshed. And it's sung now in a little more contemporary way. But it's, it's a song that you know, it's blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And the the lyrics go on to say, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That means, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm an heir of salvation. That means I've got eternal life, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. This is my story, the chorus goes on to say. This is my song. See, you have a story. You have a song It's your own, and Jesus believes that it's a story worth telling and worth hearing. I want you to look at the experience of a man who had a story to tell for sure. Look at Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, a section here of Scripture. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. My land, this, ah, it would make a great terror scene, wouldn't it? Somebody's got to produce this. This would be awesome. It's like, I need a Xanax to watch this. You know what I'm saying? This guy was a a figure from a horror scene. No one could control him. He was out of control. He was a cutter. He was cutting himself. He was so in agony. You know, the demons wanted to control him, but I I hate myself cutting himself, scarring all over, scars all over himself. Scars were the chains. He'd broken them apart with this hopeless. No one could control him. He was hopeless. You'd write him off as a hopeless case. Verse 6 
And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And this is a demon speaking now in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice. I don't know if you've ever heard a demon speak through someone. It is absolutely creepy. It makes the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up. At least it did, has with me. It's just like, ugh. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demon's afraid. What are you going to do to me? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Hopeless case, out of control. But Jesus dramatically cast out the demons from this man. And people immediately saw a difference. Immediately. Then they came to... Uh, they came to see what had happened to this guy. Listen to how Luke's gospel reports the event, Luke uh, 8. Luke says, people rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was, listen, sitting at Jesus' feet. What a contrast. Wandering in the tombs and screaming and howling and cutting himself and terrorizing people. And now this man is transformed and he's now sitting peacefully at Jesus' feet. He's clothed, he's in his right mind. Wow, how did this happen? Everything points to Jesus, amen? Everything points to Jesus. Some folks are telling me about the transformation that occurred in their lives. They said they were saved in third row right over here couple just in those chairs they were saved 20 years ago they said we were homeless we uh were penniless we were living on the streets i would never have thought that about them ever ever we were steal stuff i, I thought are you kidding as i was listening and they said but then you gave an invitation our eyes were closed the husband i was talking, he raised his hand he says my wife didn't know that she i raised my hand i didn't know that she raised my hand we both got saved, and they said immediately our lives were transformed. Some weeks later, I was talking about, you know, the importance of being moral and, and uh, being married and not living together, and they realized we need to get our act together there too. And their lives were transformed, and their marriage uh, was begun, and they've been <laughs> together ever since. But they were just saying, God, I started crying, you know, I thought, you're kidding me, I never would have realized, think about what God has done for you, what were you BC and what are you now, what has happened in your life because Jesus Christ, would you even be alive if Jesus hadn't saved you, I wouldn't, Jesus gave me hope, he forgave my sins, he showed me what his grace is, he gave me, his, I mean, I wouldn't be here except by the grace of God, thank you, don't ever get over it. Don't ever stop telling your story. Stay excited about it. You know, when I believe in something, I share it. I could be like the taste person at Trader Joe's, you know. Here, try this. I could sell. I could sell. You're going to love this. You're going to love it. I'm excited about my salvation. I'll talk about my salvation. You talk about your salvation. You share about yours. No, I'm not talking, you know, in a, you need to accept Jesus. Do you hear me? You're a sinner. Don't do that. Nobody's going to go for that. I mean, they're going to go back off, please. 
But you know, you're with somebody and, and they're, they're just having a tough time. And you're listening, you say, wow, I've never gone through what you've gone through before. I've gone through uh, this, which might be like what they're going through. And you know, I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for my faith. You know, let me tell you my story. Ah, it's your story. Now, people might argue doctrine with you, but people won't argue your story with you. Because it's your story. And in your story, Jesus is the hero. In your story, your life, like I said, I wouldn't be here now. I don't know how I would have gotten through the death of a child or how I'd gotten through, you know, the pain of a divorce or, you know, whatever your story is without Jesus. He transformed my life. There's no other reason for me to be. And maybe his story is like the one I just heard before the service, you know, of of this amazing couple and how they're now serving God. Their lives are changed. But see, it's your story and there's the power. And Jesus believes that you have a story to tell. And your story, of course, is going to point to Jesus. We're talking about your story a lot, but the whole point is to turn the spotlight on Jesus. Amen? That's the point. So when they saw this man, they saw the power of Jesus to change a life. The guy's sitting down. He's in his right mind. He had a brand new life. And Mark's gospel uh, continues in Mark chapter 5. Look at verse 18. The story continues, and as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, Jesus is going to leave and go back to the other side of the lake. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Wouldn't you? I want to go with you. I don't want to stay here. By the way, the people are hostile to Jesus. You would think they'd be thankful, right? This guy, by the way, The tombs where he lived, you know, that area was right by the highway. You had to go by that to go anywhere north and south on that side of the the only road. So can you imagine? You never know. Are we going to be terrorized? You never take it at night. Ooh, that'd be freaky, wouldn't it? Jesus had delivered all of them. But instead, they told Jesus, you know, the whole story is they told Jesus, please leave. Well, this guy doesn't want to stay with a bunch of people like that. Plus, Jesus has saved him. I want to go with you. I would want to as well. So would you. But Jesus did not allow him. In verse 19, it says, Jesus would not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Tell your story. Go and tell your story. This guy lived in the, in the region of 10 large cities. And basically, Jesus says, go tell your story. Start with your family. Go to your friends. Then go to the community. And verse 20 says, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis of 10 cities how much Jesus had done for him. And everybody marveled. Is that amazing? When I read that, I thought this is exactly what we're talking about. He shared his story. The power of a changed life, no one could argue with his story. There were a whole lot of witnesses that could even testify to the change. What did he want? Jesus wanted him to do? Return, declare how much God has done for you. And that's what he did. He went away 
proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Actually, I want you to hear this. He became, Jesus sent him out, he became the first missionary that Jesus ever sent out. A formerly demon-possessed Gentile became the first missionary. You can look at that it that way, can't you? The first sent out one, the first apostle of Jesus sent out is a formerly demon-possessed What a testimony, man. I wonder what his testimony did, you know, throughout those years. You know, your story may not be as dramatic as this, but God has created it there. And there may be only one person, like I said, that will connect with you and your story, but that one person is worth your life because they will gain eternal life as a result. This is what Jesus has done for me. He can do the same for you. He set me free. He restored my life. And in this case, I think uh, possibly a large part of his story would be the scars that you could see. This guy had scars, right? His past life created a lot of scars, probably on his face, on his legs, on his arms. He cut himself. I've seen the stones. That's the only area, those tombs, that's the only area where there is flint that you could cut yourself with. Everywhere else is like round rocks. That's the only, and I've seen those. I brought one home. Some of those rocks that he would cut himself with. He had the scars, but the scars were his testimony. Hear me? The scars were his testimony. He'd say, oh, I've done so many things, or bad things have happened to me, or I was abused, or X, Y, Z. Okay, rather than that being your shame, let it be your testimony. My scar, my hurt, even if it's something you, you messed up, there is gonna be somebody who will identify with the testimony of somebody who messed up. <laughs> Probably the majority of people, right? Your scars can be your testimony. You have a story worth telling, and Jesus believes that. That's why he says, go, go, and tell your story. One time, Jesus purposefully planned to spend time talking with a woman who had been living a very rough, immoral life, and as a result, she was a social outcast. She was living in a part of, living in the middle of the country of Israel in an area called Samaria that the Jews would, they just despised the Samaritans who lived there and the Samaritans as well despised the Jews as well. And Jesus purposely went into that area and uh, at the right time, the right place, the right person, the way he always does, he met this lady who at noon was gathering water from a well. And here we are, you know, we say, oh, okay, whatever. No, we need to become first century people and realize that women didn't get water from the well at noon. Ladies, when do you do it? When it's cool in the morning. Because you need it in the morning throughout the day. You don't need it at noon. So what is this gal doing at the well at noon? Well, she's not there in the morning with the other women because she's been sleeping with their husbands and they're gonna tear her hair out if they see her. So she's there. And Jesus shows up at the right time, the right place with the right person and begins to talk 
with her. And being skeptical at first, she listened to Jesus and her life was changed. We call her the woman at the well. And she went back and said to the people of her town, and I'm quoting, come see a man. Come see a man. He told me everything about my life. And see, she told her story and pointed people to Jesus, didn't she? Come and see. Let me tell you what I've seen and heard and experienced. Come see a man. Tell your story and point people to Jesus. If you look at the Gospel of John, if you look at John chapter 1, verse, uh, start with thir- verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. So he pointed out uh, Jesus as the Messiah. Well, he had taught his, John the Baptist, had taught his disciples well, because when his disciples heard this, they decided they wanted to follow Jesus. John, you did your job, and you did it well. So the two disciples heard him say this, and they what? Followed Jesus. Now, look at uh, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. Hey, I see it again, don't you? Hey, look who I've seen. Look who I've heard. Look who I've experienced. You gotta come and see him. And he told his story. And he said, Peter, come with me. You've gotta see Jesus. And he pointed him to Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, verse 43. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip then, he's excited. You know, he wants to tell a story. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the Messiah. We've been waiting for him, been studying about him. We found him. I've seen him, I've heard him. You gotta come and see And Nathanael said in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, some people are skeptical. And they kind of want to pour cold water on your testimony, on your story. But Philip didn't let it bug him. He just said, well, come and see. Come and see. Do you see what he said? Just come and see. See, it's not our job to convince or to convert or convict people. It's not my job to convert anybody to convict or convince. I, I can do my best to share what I know, do my best to share the word, but it's the Holy Spirit's job, it's God's job to convert somebody. It's God's job to save somebody. Sometimes people say, oh man, you saved me. And I, I kind of laugh. I don't want to laugh at them, but I think I, I, if you think I could save you, you're in trouble, right? And, you know, but that's just being a baby, a baby Christian or baby in the faith. They don't understand what they're saying. I quickly inform them that it, salvation is of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. 
But I can't convert, you can't either, you can't convert anybody, you can't convince them of their sin, you can't, um, what it is Jesus' job to do that, and he will. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He comes to the world to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. To show that person you're talking to, hey, that sin in your life, judgment day is coming, but you can have righteousness in Jesus Christ. You share. You share your story because Jesus believes your story's worth telling and you point people to Jesus. But then the results are up to God. You are convinced. This is your story. This is your song, so to speak. Nobody can take it away from you. And if they don't like it, that's their problem. It's not yours. Don't stop and say, well, I'm not going to say it again because I got rejected. Oh, please. Come on. Come on. We can't live by making sure nobody rejects us because if we do that, we'll never do anything. Right? I've lived too much of my life wanting to please people. Now at the point in my life, I'm saying, I don't care what you think. You know, it's what God thinks. You know, you don't walk around and offend people or anything, but really bottom line is, what's important to God? That's what's important for you. Tell your story. We call it witnessing all the time. I'm more comfortable with saying, sharing my story. How about you guys? When you say, you need to witness you got to, you know, the four spiritual laws, ah, you know, oh. But if I just tell you a story. Your story includes some Bible verses, I'm sure. You paraphrase them. But you're just honestly, and when it's your story, it's convincing. It's authentic. And it's powerful. Go. Go to your friends, go to your family, and tell them the great things that God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Peter, you gotta come and see. Andrew, Andrew, Nathaniel. Okay, you're skeptical, but come and see anyway. Come and see anyway. We have the most powerful story in the world. The gospel is good news, not good do's. You must do this, do that. The gospel is good news. The world wants good news. And the gospel is how God has come and he's given grace to us, changed our lives because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And I'm telling you, you can share that. And again, it's the Holy Spirit's job. You know what I've done before? I have at the beginning of a service... This I've done several times at the very beginning of a service, after the music is over, I say, you know, some of you here tonight, right now, and you don't need to know anything more about God than you know right now. What you know right now is that God wants your life, and you need to surrender your life to God right now, and I'm going to give you that opportunity, and we've had like 30 people get saved. And it's like, they didn't hear anything. They're already convicted. They're already ripe, ripe for the gospel, ready for the gospel. And when you share your story, you're going to run into people. God will bring you in contact with people because here's God wanting people to be saved. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to salvation. 
So here's God wanting and God saying, your story matters. I just want you to share this person. And if you don't, they're going to go by. And there might not be anybody else that they will connect with. You're the person God's put in their pathway. It's scary. Yeah, I know. It's scary. It's scary. Obviously, Jesus gives a task that's beyond anyone's ability to do by themselves. But Jesus said he would give the Holy Spirit to his disciples. The last words he said. The last words, again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You'll receive power. The very last words of Jesus, when he's telling our story, the very last words is, I'll give you power, by the way, because you're going to need it. You don't have it in yourself. You can't be bold all by yourself. But you will find yourself, when you're telling your story, all of a sudden, this like, something will come over you, and you think, this is amazing what I'm saying. I'm going to take notes of myself afterwards, you know, or I'm pull out my phone, and I'm just going to record what I'm saying right now. This is amazing, because the Holy Spirit will come upon you. We can't keep silent about what we have seen and heard, the apostles said, what they've experienced with Jesus. And you know, when God's people are excited about their story, you can't keep silent either. How many times do I I pull out my phone and show people something that I'm excited about? If you're excited about your story, you're going to share it with people. And he'll give you the power of the Holy Spirit to share your story. Let's pray. Lord, we are glad and we want to tell the story of what you've done in our lives. Now, just provide the opportunity, please. We, We pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us, that he would freshly fill us, and that you'll bring people into our lives, that our lives would intersect with others, with those people that you have prepared for us, in Jesus' name. And everybody said a great big amen. God's word is awesome, isn't it? Sweetly in the tree When I 
Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Divine Intervention. 
Oh, what a pitiful life. She doesn't even have a son. She doesn't even have a common daughter. Now she's young, but wait until time passes. Does she think her husband's heart will be steadfast? She doesn't even have a child. Oh, what's the use of crying and wailing in tears and praying? God has closed her womb. How many numerous sins have she committed? Her ancestors must have committed numerous sins as well. Ah, who cares if she's good looking? God has turned away from her. What's the pleasure of her life without a child? Panina's sharp voice, mixed with sarcasm and jeer, still resounded in the ear of the woman who was crying bowed down. Along with her voice, Panina's ridicule and cold and fierce eyes vividly came to mind and it seemed to pierce the woman's tender heart. Finally, the woman Hannah burst into crying, which she had been containing, and wailed endlessly. Lord God! <laughs> Why are you not taking care of my suffering? Have you forgotten about your servant? Do you not hear the groaning of the servant? If you turn away from the servant, I have no hope to live. Please, show me that you are a living God. From a certain year, whenever her husband Elkanah gave sacrifice to God, he gave Hannah double of the most delicious food than Panina and the children. This seemed to provoke Panina's feelings even more because as every year passed, she irritated Hannah more severely. That's right, Elkanah had two wives and Hannah did not have a child and Panina had a child. Every chance she had, Panina tormented Hannah who did not have a child. Hannah was resentful and saddened by her circumstance. However, more than not having a child, the most painful part for Hannah was the thought that God turned away from her and did not take care of her. For Hannah, this was the unbearable suffering and pain. God was observing Hannah from long ago. God took notice of the woman who laid her problem in life she couldn't solve before him while praying and not giving up. God began to unfold his plan through Hannah. God closed Hannah's womb and every time Panina's tormenting got more fierce, Hannah's prayer filled with resent and sadness became more sorrowful and desperate. One day, Hannah, who was captivated by God's spirit and praying fervently, at long last made a vow by saying, God, if you give me a son, I will give him to you for all the days of his life. Strengthened by hardship and suffering, she gave a prayer of bold faith. In the future, after Hannah gave birth to a son, she said a poem of praise to God. When we look into the poem's content, we know that she was a woman of faith who greatly revered God. She finds out that her joy goes beyond her son, whom she could see with her eyes, to God, whom she cannot see. Hannah was joyful and thankful for her son, embraced in her bosom. But more than due to her son, it was due to the Lord who answered her prayer that she raised an overflowing praise of joy and thanksgiving. More than the gift that was answered and received, 
she was thankful to the precious living God who was answering her prayer. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Hannah was a woman of faith who revered God. Hannah's small story magnificently permeates into God's great story of redemption in this way. That's right, the author of Hannah's story is God. Behind the life of one woman named Hannah, God's plan that cannot be seen is hidden. Hannah's story doesn't stop at a trivial story of one individual gaining a child, but is part of God's great story of salvation that began very long ago. At the end of the Age of Judges, when individuals lived according to their own right opinion, through relative truth and confused sense of values, the Israelites hit spiritual bottom. God's heart was heavy as He looked down upon them. God needed one person who would turn the people's heart back to Him. God was looking for a pure soul that didn't follow the age's trend. God wanted to communicate with His people through that one person. However, He couldn't find such a being starting from the priest's family to the completely corrupt situation of His Israel. This became an important reason why Samuel was conceived in such a situation that was within God's long-time plan. Also, God needed another prepared person who would send Samuel, who existed in God's plan, out into the world. One soul entered God's eyes, and that woman was Hannah, a woman of faith who revered the Lord. Samuel was born in this world to Hannah's vow prayer. Samuel was a spiritual leader who led Israel out of darkness and into a new state, and he can't be left out in the history of Israel. There was a great turning point in the nation of Israel through him. The history of Israel, which stood on the precipice of collapse, was turned around. Fasting at Mizpah and a spiritual revival of repentance occurred. All the tribes of Israel sincerely loved the Lord God. Also, through Samuel the prophet, the great calling of Jesus' ancestor David, receiving anointing of oil as king was fulfilled. As we look back at Hannah's life, I believe that the trivial things that happen in our daily lives are not a coincidence, but a necessity that happens in God's story. Our insignificant and trivial daily life is weaved into God's completed great story of salvation. Even an unexpected incident or encounter that seems like a coincidence are not fragments of life that exist separately, but they are part of a greater story. Therefore, I realize that there is a different, greater hidden story that gives meaning to our small story. This truth gives an important motive for us to live this world by faith. Dear beloved listeners, Hannah did not pray for world peace or nation salvation. She just prayed for the most urgent problem laid before her. However, God entered the life of this ordinary person and used the prayer of an individual praying for a trivial problem for his great story of salvation. 
That's right. The Bible tells us that the moments where small and trivial stories in life transfer and transcend to God's great story are happening in our lives. Therefore, even though we may feel like today is so ordinary and insignificant, and our prayers seem like a mere individual's wish and a small matter of daily life, God gathers all fragments of our lives and completes them into God's great and brilliant picture. We, who are main characters of the small story, may not know the meaning of our stories being joined to the great story. However, I believe that in the future, we will go before God and clearly see and know the full account of our stories. The story of our lives doesn't begin when we are born and end when we die. Our stories begin and end within God's story. The most amazing and thankful truth is that God Himself entered the history of humanity and took the role. God became a person, Jesus Christ. As Jesus lived on this earth, He drew the small stories together with humans. Through perfect obedience and laying Himself down, He completed the greatest story of salvation. Dear listeners, one day God's completed stories of salvation will unfold before us and I desperately hope and desire to draw those stories with you. On that day, I believe that all our stories will come alive with new meaning and we will perfectly comprehend the moments of suffering we couldn't understand before. On that day, it is promised that all tears will be wiped away and all suffering and pain will disappear. I want to greet that wonderful and glorious day of glory with you, who are main characters of small stories. I desire for us to look at God's hand hidden in our individual stories of faith. I want us to be joyful because of God and give praise of joy and thanksgiving like Hannah. I give glory to our great God who is completing the great picture of salvation through our lives. This was Terry from Divine Intervention. I'll see you next week. Be blessed in the Lord. When the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet between the black skies and my red eyes, I can barely see And when I'm feeling like I've been let down by my friends and my family I can hear the rain reminding me In the eye of the storm, you remain in control In the middle of the war, you guard my soul surrounds me in the eye of the storm mm-hmm. when my hopes and dreams are far from me and i'm running out of faith i see the future i picture slowly fade away and when the tears of pain and heartache are pouring down my face I find my peace in Jesus' name
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.